Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. We're coming finally to the end of those three chapters where Paul has written about the impact of spiritual gifts, the impact of the Holy Spirit being poured out, as Terry spoke to us right at the beginning in January, about the impact of that wonderful gift on our church life and on our lives. And we've heard about, we've had encouragement, we've heard practical teaching, um, we, we've, we've heard um, expectation. Have you got expectation from the gifts of the Spirit now? I pray you have. That was our heart for this, that we would expect so much more from him. We've only covered some of them. We haven't covered miracles. We haven't covered healing. We haven't covered faith. There are many more gifts we could cover, and maybe we'll come back to at some point. And, and there are other lists of the gifts anyway. So the Holy Spirit is the one who enables and anoints us when we bring a passage of Scripture, when we give a testimony, as Paul says in this list. And then there's that glorious chapter 13 in the middle, which is sort of yanked out and used at weddings about love. But actually... It all revolves around that passage, doesn't it? I mean, too often, I think we do, when we're going to 12 and jump to 14, but if we haven't got 13, if we haven't got that the core of this is love for one another and for God, then it's all going to go badly wrong. So that's where we've got to. At first sight, this is a bit of a strange ending, isn't it? To these two amazing chapters with a real twist at the end. But I think there's an underlying theme here that we'll discover as we go through that actually has a huge impact on each of our lives today. We're going to work through the passage, which means the elephant in the room comes last, okay? So you have to wait for that bit. Because we're a scripture church, aren't we? That means we preach it all. That means we don't just preach the nice bits and we don't leave out the awkward bits. So we're a scripture church because we also believe that, as it says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's my prayer this morning, that this passage will equip all of us for every good work. So it starts off, well, my brothers and sisters, let me summarise. That's really what interpretation of that first verse is. When you come together, everybody has. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I think to understand that, we need to understand a bit more about how the church in Corinth was. So... In terms of all the work they've done in digging up things, we haven't found a building in Corinth with a room bigger than would take 60 people. Because we think this is probably in houses. This isn't like the sort of church we have now where we get a building, they almost certainly meant a house. So we're probably talking of a group of 50 or 60 people when we're imagining this. It will be all generations, children through to older people. It will probably be meeting in the evening because many of them are slaves and they'd work in the day. So they'd gather in the evening, they might eat together. And there'd be no instruments. <laughs> There's no band. But they would sing passionately. 
without instruments. There would not normally be a sermon like this. They didn't split their meetings into, as we do, a period of sung worship and then a period of listening to the Bible worship. It would be much more intermingled. In fact, there would only be a sermon, probably, if there was a visiting uh, apostolic figure. There would be passages read from Scripture. But of course, their Scripture was the Old Testament. Plus, possibly, a, a letter they just got from Paul. Or maybe some snippets of Gospels. People would be standing up um, to give these, would be coming and going. There would be testimonies, there'd be tongues, prophecies, prayers. It would be very spontaneous. And it would flow through the whole time. The tradition was that you would be sitting down most of the time. So you would get up if you were going to give a prophecy. Which explains the slightly complicated bit about prophets getting up and sitting down. So most of the time, everyone will be sitting down. It's far less structured than our meetings, but very harmonious. It's a time and space for everyone to contribute. That's why he says that everyone has. So Paul now then needs to give some guidelines to this, because individualism was rampant in this church. It was a good church. I think it's probably a great church. Paul spent a year and a half here teaching people. Powerful church. Lots of good stuff going on. But individualism was ruling what was going on. And so this is why he has to write these things. Because we need to recognise worship is fundamentally not for us. It's not, we worship together not so we feel better. We worship together primarily not so that we come away encouraged, better or stronger. It's always very dangerous and it's easy to do, to go away often and say, what did you think of the worship? In other words, what did it do for you or for me? That's not what worship is for. There's a verse in the Old Testament that says, worship belongs to God. It's His first and foremost. What we're doing in worship, first and foremost, is about Him and for Him, isn't it? That's why it's so glorious. But secondly, it is to upbuild each other. So we come to contribute so that we can upbuild each other. And then as Richard taught us last week, there's an overflow from that of the gospel and the presence of God to the world. So it's to glorify God, it's to edify others, it's to convict outsiders. Let everyone be ready to contribute. Everything should be done to glorify God and make the whole church strong in faith. So he goes on to give these practical guidelines about tongues and prophecies, which are still relevant to us today. Well, they ought to be. I mean, there ought to be tongues and prophecies, aren't they? <laughs> so they, we ought to have the same problem as they had. And these uh, guidelines, I think, also apply to all the other things that we bring Paul just concentrates on tongues of prophecy because they were two very big things in this church in Corinth. So if we understand that we're really talking about probably what would we would call a large prayer meeting. Probably that services would feel really like a really good prayer meeting with say 50 or 60 people rather than what we tend to do here now in our age. So what he's saying is if someone stands to prophesy and they start prophesying, if somebody else feels strongly that God's given them a word for now, they would also stand up. And that would be a signal 
to the one who's currently prophesying to actually wind up and sit down. That's what he's saying. What he's saying also is once you have two or three of these, stop. Because otherwise you lose what's in them. You, you lose the impact. And I've been in meetings sometimes when you have prophecy and prophecy. And you know, just think, I'm just getting my head around this one, that's the next one. You say, no, two or three maximum at a time, and then wait. And I think we do this. We do this well. We, someone stands up and says, let's just wait. Let's just let these prophecies settle in. Similarly with tongues. If you sense the Holy Spirit is giving you a tongue, if you're not confident either that someone else is here with the interpretation or you feel a sense that God's given you to the interpretation, I'm sorry, not today. Not today. As well, but there are people here with the gift of interpretation. I think I've said before, I wish I had it. I, I keep, every time, every time I say to God, please give me the interpretation. It hasn't happened so far. But I think we should ask, shouldn't we? Because <laughs> there are people here with the gift of interpretation. As Paul says in verse 33, his, his summary of this, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. What he's saying is, our style of worship reflects how we see God. There's a total crossover. The way we worship, our style of worship, individually and together, it reflects how we see God, what he is like. So, God is a God of order, not disorder. He is a God of peace and harmony, not chaos. Does that mean our meetings should be predictable? Should be organised? Should, should fit a pattern all the time? Is that what it's saying? Because people have interpreted it like that, haven't they? Over the years, often they've said, oh no, you know, God's a God of order, you just have to control everything. Well, I don't know what your experience of God is. Mine isn't like that. <coughs> I don't see him being structured and predictable and stayed. I find him often to be a bit unpredictable, unflexible, and spontaneous. So I think if our worship wants to reflect God, it should be like that. He is orderly and harmonious and full of peace, but it's spontaneous. I, I love reading accounts of revivals. We were praying about it this morning, weren't we? When God comes in power to a community and, and there is such a sense of the presence of God, it's tangible. Um, I love reading the stories because it's so tangible. You find people are walking up the streets, non-Christians, and they just sense God and fall on their knees. But it starts, first of all, in the church. And it's glorious. And I pray we see revival again. It's far too long in this nation. I think the last was probably in the lower stock in the 30s. But I'm just going to read a couple of eyewitness accounts from the 1905 revival, because I think this is quite close to what Paul was looking for in his church. So these are eyewitness accounts in two different churches in Wales in 1905. This is the first one. About 10 o'clock, a young girl rose to her feet and prayed with an explosive passion until the Spirit came on the meeting. People started praying aloud, asking forgiveness, giving thanks, praising God. Never before had I seen such holy disorder in a church meeting. But despite the apparent disorder, no clash of the Spirit was felt there. 
A beautiful harmony was sensed in the confessing, praying and praising. The harsh sounds of self were nowhere to be heard. And then in another church, another person commenting. There was no special leader, no musical instruments, no hymn books. Everybody was at liberty to speak or sing or pray if they felt led to do so, with the result that solos, choruses, hymns, exhortations, testimonies followed on one another and sometimes even went together, but without confusion or manifest disorder in a wonderful way. Now and then a short address was given by someone until the speaker gave way to someone else with an outburst of song without the slightest irritation. And even when two different hymns started from different parts of the church, one gave one way to the other without discord or confusion. I'd love to hear something like that, wouldn't you? I think that's what Paul wanted in Corinth and in churches. He wanted that beautiful spontaneity of the Holy Spirit moving. That's why he gave these guidelines. But in Corinth, things were going wrong. And that's why we come to these last two sections in the passage. One about pride and knowledge, and the other about women speaking. So here we come to the verse. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. It's probably about time we finish this week. (laughs) So, there are two key principles we should use whenever we're interpreting the Bible. The first is scripture interprets scripture. Really important. That the whole counsel of God. You can't take a verse and pull it out of context. Uh, One of the things that, just give a simple example, I've seen a few times. Ephesians 3 verse 20. Now unto him who, who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Now I've seen that used in prayer meetings where somebody says, well, imagine the most imaginable thing you can imagine and then treble that or times it behind and pray for that. Which, to be honest, leads to ridiculous prayers. Because this isn't about prayer. It's pulled out of context. This is a passage about the glory of God and saying he's so much more than we can ask or imagine. So don't pull a verse out on its own. We need to interpret this verse along with others, which we'll do in just a minute. And secondly, scripture always has a context. That's part of the beauty and richness of it. It's not like a handbook of this is what we believe. It's not like a religious textbook of this is what you should do at all. It's a series of real letters and stories about real people in different situations, which God has inspired to teach us and train us in how our lives work. That's why I say we don't read the Bible. The Bible reads us. As you read it, you find it speaks. It's like a mirror into our lives. So there's always a context, and what we have to do is look at the principle behind the command, because the command might be very relevant to the situation, but the way we work that out now could be very different, because the situation is different. So as far as I can find, there are five ways people are trying to understand and interpret this passage. None of them work perfectly. So I'm not standing here to say, this is the answer. That would be a bit brave. 
But I will take you through what I feel, and I'll land on the one that I feel is the most likely. But you need to look at them. You know, we need to grapple with scripture, don't we? We speak from the front, but not for you to go and say that's all truth. It's for, for God to put a seed in your heart that you then go and think about and pray about. Well, that's what I pray will happen this morning. One of my favorite quotes about these sort of passages from Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, it's, it's not the passages I can't understand in the Bible that give you the most trouble. It's the passages I can. And that's true, isn't it? There's so much that is challenging just in what we do understand. But let's just do it with this. So, the first two um, ways of looking at this are attempts to basically get rid of the verses because they're embarrassing. Which you can understand. So the, the first one sometimes people will say is this is, is actually a bit that was never in the letter originally and what's happened is it's come in later. Because we need to understand, you know, we have lots of texts from the Bible going back right to the early days, but they're each little bits and they don't always completely agree as people have copied them. Um, the most famous example of this would be the end of the Gospel of Mark. Look it up if you want at the end in your Bibles, but Mark 16, 9 to 20, the last verses, you will see there's a note saying some of the earliest texts don't have this. Therefore we think, you know, it's here, we put it in our Bibles, but we take it carefully. There's no evidence, sadly, for that this passage is one of those. Now, although it does jump a bit awkwardly in there, when we go back to all the early texts, they nearly all have it. So I'm sorry, that's, we can't dodge it that way. The second way uh, people look at it is to say, well, sometimes in this letter, Paul puts something out there that is quoting what the Corinthians have said and then goes around to disagree with it. So you'll find early on there's a bit, I think it's in chapter 7, where um, he says, uh, we, we are all free, all things are lawful. And he's actually quoting something they say, and then he goes and explains it's not quite like that. Well, this doesn't really fit, because he doesn't really say anything different. It's also a very long quote. So I'm afraid we can't do that, we can't ignore with that one either. So... We need to come to our principles about scripture interpreting scripture, don't we? And this is very helpful in this situation, because even in the same letter, we've read it this morning, Paul says, everyone has, doesn't he? And lists things. Now all these things need to be spoken, and the everyone is obviously not just men, it's men and women. And also we read earlier on in chapter 11, there's also some instructions about women prophesying. Well, yeah. Women can't speak, it's quite hard to prophesy. So we already know that we should be looking at this a bit differently. That's clear from scripture, which is really very helpful. So what does it mean? There are three options that people seem to come up with. The first option is, well, this passage is all about interpreting tongues and prophecies. And maybe women shouldn't interpret tongues and prophecies. Some people would argue that. I find that a bit bizarre. <laughs> if, if he's talking about women prophesying and everyone giving tongues, I don't, I, mean, I think that's unlikely, should we say, most unlikely. The second one, and the one that I was probably more brought up with, is, well, perhaps the women were getting a bit unruly. You know, like they do here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't do it here. 
I'm on thin ice already. <laughs> Perhaps um, in, there were in Corinth uh, lots of different sects, often they had women prophets, maybe some of that was spilling over into the church. Or the other argument is the men sat on one side, the women sat on the other, and the women were either gossiping or shouting questions, of course. Perhaps there's something of that, but the problem is we don't have evidence for either of those two. So we have no evidence that men and women sat separately. There's nowhere else in the letter that Paul talks about women gossiping, and obviously he's quite happy with women prophesying to that kind of issue. So, uh, I think that's unlikely, but you will find people do talk about it. So I've only got one left, eh? Um, which I think is probably the most likely. And some of our problems with these things come because we are translating from Greek into English. We're translating from languages, and they don't always have the same meaning. And the word here that is used can mean women or can mean wife. And in fact, when you read the passage, it uses the word wife halfway through. So it is quite possible that this is a specific thing about relationships in marriage between men and women. This would make some sense, because we're in a culture of shame and honor. We don't live in that culture. We live in a culture of, of law and grace. But they live in a culture of shame, where shame is enormously powerful and the one thing you must avoid at all costs. In fact, people would kill somebody because they were ashamed. Ashamed that they put on the family. And in that culture, if, if a wife challenged a husband publicly in a meeting, that would bring enormous shame. I mean, in our culture, if you were at a dinner, if a husband or wife undermined their partner or was critical, you know, that would be a horrible thing. But well, this is even much greater in their context. And that would fit in, as I said, with this word shame. That what it's saying is not at all about women or wives being silent in church, but it is about challenging or, or asking a husband in a way that would bring shame and undermine the relationship. You're quite welcome to come and ask me about this afterwards. <laughs> but I think that works a bit because it's actually the principle in the whole passage. Because this is all about voluntarily submitting to somebody else for the common good. And earlier on in the passage, we've had prophets submitting to another prophet. They're standing up, they're having, they've got a great word, they're halfway through it, they think it's going to get even better, and then someone else stands up and they have to stop. They have to submit. Someone with a tongue has got to submit to the congregation if they don't think there's someone to interpret. So I think we might be looking here at a principle that runs through not just this passage, but the whole of the Bible, both Old and New Testament. It's not a very popular one. We were having a debate about is there a response or we couldn't find one about submitting to one another. It's funny though, isn't it? It's not something you find on TikTok or on Instagram or on Twitter. But I think this ability we have as people to voluntarily submit to someone who may be no more intelligent, no more capable, no better than us, but because we choose to do it, it's powerful. Mm. And I think it's a reflection of the character of God. I suspect, I'm not sure, but I suspect animals can't do this. They will submit to a dominant other animal, mm. 
but I'm not sure they ever choose to submit to someone who isn't dominant. I think that's something that is part of the glory of being a human being in the image of God. I mean, Jesus says very clearly when the disciples are talking about who's the greatest, he said, whoever wants to be great amongst you must be your servant. A servant. Okay? You want to be great in this church, which isn't a bad aim at all? So, everybody, submit to one another. In fact, there's at least nine verses talking about submission in the New Testament. Some in family context, um, children, husbands and wives. I mentioned this to Nikki. She said, she has absolutely no problem submitting to me whenever I'm loving her like Jesus loves the church. <laughs> you can ask her how many times she feels that's happened. <laughs> but it also says, 1 Timothy 6 verse 2, submit to your masters, good or bad. People who work for. Our bosses aren't perfect, are they? They're sometimes far from perfect. We're called to submit to them. It's a hard attitude. Out of, uh, because it glorifies God. 1 Peter 4 verse 10. Serve one another. Because it releases God's grace. 1 Peter 5 verse 5. Young men, be submissive to those who are old. I'm planning a sermon series on that one. <laughs> Hebrews 13 17, submit to your leaders so they can serve you joyfully. And then the climax, the best one of all. Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence. This is what church is about. And it is because of the Jesus that we worshipped that we can do this. This is what the Corinthians were getting so badly wrong. They were proud of their knowledge, they felt they knew it all. They didn't need anybody else's input. They were tending towards super spiritual. They thought, this bit at the end where it says, did the, Paul says, did the word of God originate with you? They, they thought they had it. They thought they, knew. they didn't need to learn from anybody else. And they were particularly obsessed with proud of their freedom to make choices oblivious of the consequences or the advice of other people. And Paul frequently challenges them through this letter. We live in another Corinth today, don't we? We live in a world supercharged with this whole thing of freedom and of knowledge and what I know is best. We live in a world passionately concerned to live our best life, irrelevant of anybody else or what anybody else says. So I think this principle of submission is, is critical for us, because we bring this with us. Can't not do it. So I want to end by telling you a story. It's part of my story. It starts, when I went so many years ago, it's quite a lot, <laughs> at a Bible week. And Terry Virgo, who we've had preach here, was preaching. Um, and he gave an illustration that had a powerful impact on me, a life-changing impact. I, I think I probably had three or four times where I felt something has happened that's changed the direction of my life. I don't know about you, I think three or four is, seems quite common for people. And uh, this was definitely one for me. And he told this little illustration. He talked about two horses. Once upon a time, there were two young colts running free in a field, enjoying the sunshine, eating the grass, 
loving the blue sky and their freedom. And then along came a man who captured them both, tied them with ropes, and took them back to a corral where they were trained. Time passes, and their forced confinement becomes increasingly tedious and frustrating to the extent that one cult decides they've had enough and they're longing for the days of when they could roam free and they leap the fence and gallop away to enjoy life with the fields and the grass and the skies. The other cult stays behind. Gradually, he learns to yield, to respect the bridle and the whip. The training is tough, but he begins to understand its purpose. Finally, it ends. Is he being rewarded by being released to run free again? No. Now a harness is dropped over his shoulders, a saddle put on his back, and he's even more confined than ever. Sometime later, that first cult is nibbling the grass on a beautiful hillside, when down the road comes a glorious carriage drawn by six horses. It's a shiny black carriage with ornate gold lettering, red curtains, and it's drawn by six splendid horses. And the horses are decorated with bells and plumes. They look magnificent and powerful. It is the king's carriage. Suddenly, the colt in the field recognises the lead horse. It's his old playmate. No longer free to roam, but now mature. Strong, splendid, fulfilling a glorious purpose. He is pulling a king's carriage. That changed my life. At that point I was a, a, an army officer based up in Scotland. I was, I was committed to the churches I was in. I, I led home groups and, and was really involved. But I never conceived of church as being a place where someone might tell me something about what I should do in my life. Not, not in an oppressive way, but just say something that I should take notice of and respect and possibly submit to. That was radical for me. Probably radical for many of us. And I processed that over a few months. I also read, in the grace of God, I read a book called The Eagle and the Raven, which is a story about the Roman invasion of England and the various tribes and how they resisted and how one by one the Romans picked them off until two or three of them joined together and submitted to one leader who wasn't better than any of the rest of them and they were able to resist and suddenly this started to get this sense of there's something powerful here something life changing and I would say that that has been um, one of the key things in my life it, 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 it's a decision but it, it happens every now and then doesn't it you find yourself in a situation, because it's tempting to say, I submit to God, uh, but I need to submit to people, but it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Just like John says in 1 John, if we say we love God and don't love our brothers, we don't love God. So submission to God is about being part of a fellowship, being submitted to one another, respecting the things we might say to each other. Not in a detailed, overbearing way. Sometimes that has happened which is totally wrong, it's not what we're talking about, but this, this submission to achieve a glorious purpose. So, this is the simple question I want to end with today, for each of us. What horse will you be? What horse will you be? 
You can stay in the field. There's a lot of freedom in being a Christian. There's much blessing in the field. You can have a good life. You can stay in the field. Or you can consciously choose to submit your life to others and to God and find you end up being part of a glorious purpose. It's a choice. Let's do it.